0: This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. And it feels like a lot's happened in the last week. I am an investor in Dogecoin. Actually, I just sold my Doge, full disclosure. I was a little disappointed by the silver move. I kind of was hoping it would do a lot more than it did. It was pretty exciting on Sunday night when you looked at Twitter and it looked like the whole world was going to buy silver. I was telling my mom about it. She's like, should I buy? She she almost bought silver. And then the next day she's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, it's been fun. It's a speculative frenzy and I am loving every second of it. And if you love investing and if you love kind of like a lot of the big attraction, in my view, of the junior mining industry is this get-rich-quick sort of side to it. It's this idea, I mean, James Dines, I always talk about James Dines, he kind of put it best. The weird, super-charged aspect of junior mining is when silver is, say, below a certain price, a certain property will basically be worthless. As he said, it's cow pasture, but what makes the leverage so insane is once the silver price, for example, gets above a certain amount, all of a sudden that cow pasture turns into a mine. So you get from a ten cent stock to a two dollar stock, and you know you're on your way. So that's kind of what got me into junior mining. I mean. It, sad to say maybe, I mean, the get-rich-quick aspect of it, but I think it's kind of the draw for a lot of people. And I think that's what draws a lot of people to crypto, where they see, oh, wow, look at all the money you can make. I mean, I'm reading a book on bubbles, Boom and Bus, A History of Financial Bubbles, I believe it's called. And you know what's kind of shocking about that is reading reading about uh, the Mississippi bubble, the South Sea bubble, they weren't that crazy like even the Tulip Mania, like it looked like or I'd have to revisit, but I was looking at numbers like 10X on your investment. And I don't know, like you, you watch interviews with some of these crypto people, some of them 1,000X. And you just think about that. Like, what is 1,000X? That is, you put in $1,000 and you walk away with a million. So anyways, that's all pretty crazy stuff. And so... Go with caution is all I have to say in that area. Should should this sort of get you interested, proceed with caution because it goes down as quickly as it goes up and you really kind of like, you know, in my experience, you got to kind of really like the project and understand the project to stay with it. Because if you don't understand and really believe, and I think that's, Crypto or anything. Uh, in, in, if you don't really believe in your investment, you're easily shaken out and you're easily going to lose money. So, you know, I heard another guy describe it as, you know, speculators in say certain of these markets, they get burned, but investors do really well. So you kind of want to have a bit of an investment mindset in my opinion. But anyways, if you're excited about the financial Side of things in this whole mining world. Uh, We have a very special guest today. We have Jay Martin from Cambridge House, and yeah, it's funny. I got in touch with them because I heard the Stephen Harper interview, and I was needed some content. There were no earnings calls, so then we ended up doing this interview instead, and that was even better, as interesting as the Stephen Harper interview was, because I could sort of pick Jay's brain on what he thought because he's been doing this for a long time and. Yeah, so it's very exciting. You can, I was editing the audio. You can hear the excitement in my voice, So the questions I'm asking. I can't wait to find out what he has to say. And let me tell you, he has some very interesting things to say. A little teaser, the next big bull market for Jay that he sees, which he thinks could be the biggest in our lifetimes. I still think it's crypto, but who the heck knows? For Jay, and it hasn't even started yet, he thinks it's healthcare. Pretty thought-provoking idea and, you know, not a crazy idea at all. And you see Kathy Wood, who kind of rose to fame somewhat by kind of calling Tesla before everybody else and staying firm with it and kind of turning out to be right and ARK Investments over there. And, yeah, she's big on genomics. So, anyways, we do talk about mining in there as well, but we do talk about just the most exciting opportunities – in the markets, as well as the nature of the conference industry. Of course, Cambridge House puts on conferences, Northern Miner puts on conferences. So it was interesting just to get his take on it. So it's a pretty long interview, actually. It's over half an hour, and it was exciting the whole way through. So with that, let's get on with the show. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter, at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram, at The Northern Miner. And you can find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And with that, let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, a favorite of the show, Rio Tinto. Back in the news, Turquoise Hill seeks interim order against Rio Tinto over Mongolia mine funding. Let's take a closer look. This is by Cecilia Jamazmi, mining.com. Turquoise Hill Resources is seeking an interim order in its arbitration against Rio Tinto in response to some of the top miners' actions that would limit Turquoise's funding for the vast Oyu Tolgoi copper-gold-silver mine in Mongolia. Tensions between Rio Tinto and Turquoise Hill's management and minority shareholders have grabbed headlines in recent months. The two companies are at odds over roles and obligations in securing the remaining funding for the underground expansion of the mine. Now, Turquoise Hill is partially owned by Rio Tinto. As far as I understand, the government of Mongolia owns part of Turquoise Hill and Rio Tinto owns part of Turquoise Hill. So you see the weird sort of dynamics here. So, of course, Turquoise Hill has its own management. And now it's kind of butting heads with its partial owner, Rio Tinto, the Vancouver-based miner, uh, majority owned by Rio Tinto, so we're talking about Turquoise Hill Resources, had expected the underground expansion to cost $5.3 billion when it was approved in 2015. Last year, however, Turquoise Hill flagged stability risks associated with the original project design, adding that amendments in it could increase costs by as much as an additional $1.9 billion. Turquoise Hill also warned at the time of further delays of up to two and a half years, with first sustainable production from Oyu Tolgoi's Underground expansion expected between May 2022 and June 2023. Rio Tinto had said in September it planned to raise up to $500 million through additional lending to develop the giant copper mine. The move, Rio said, would reduce the remaining funding requirements of the expansion to up to $1.4 billion. And then we have an interesting little part here. So by reprofiling... The parties sought more time to repay their debt, knowing that the principal of the extended debt, or in some cases even the interest rate on it, are not reduced. So I guess a delay is not just a delay in time. It costs you money if you're borrowing huge amounts of money. It's not just that you have to wait, it's that you're paying to wait. So that does cause any remaining funding for the underground mine, Rio Tinto vowed, was to be met through a turquoise hill equity offering turquoise hill is simultaneously advancing its evaluation of financing options for oyu tolgoy such alternatives include additional debt from banks or international financial institutions an offering of global medium-term notes and a gold streaming transaction it said and those streams we talk about the streams in our interview later so it looks like this turquoise hill oyu tolgoy mine is delayed And it's going to cost money. And now it's kind of a question of who's going to foot the bill, from what I gather here. And finally, the company had previously disclosed it was facing a funding shortfall for Oyu's expansion of up to US $4 billion, including balance sheet servicing costs. So if you're in the whole $4 billion and you're paying interest on that, that could get pretty intense. Now, you would think a gold streaming transaction would be the last thing they would want to do. I don't understand the idea of getting a gold stream right now. If you have a commodity in the ground that's likely going up in price, as everything is, has a shiny outlook, and interest rates are at historic lows, why do a gold stream? Can't you get a a loan on your real asset in the ground, backed by Rio Tinto and the government of Mongolia? Surely you can get some kind of semi low interest loan. I am not an expert in these areas, but. There you have it. So Rio Tinto, more clashes, on with and this time with Turquoise Hill over the funding of Oyu Tolgoi. Moving on, uh, we have another big money situation with Samarco, who was hit with almost a $1 billion lawsuit. How much was it? it was, actually, it was $898 million. Now, Samarco, this is by Cecilia Jmazmi mining.com, Samarco so is a joint venture in Brazil between BHP and Valet. So two pretty big companies and I believe BHP is the biggest and Valet is one of the biggest. And so they had a joint venture and they had a disaster with the Fundão tailing dam in 2015 that killed 19 people. So here, let's take a closer look. So they've been hit with a $1 billion lawsuit from note holders I assume that's bondholders, who accuse the company of ignoring their requests to restructure their debt. So the lenders are accusing the company of ignoring their requests to restructure their debt. Interesting. This claim filed in October last year by the Bank of New York Mellon on behalf of note holders states that $898 million sought from Samarco is made up of the $700 million principal of the notes the plaintiff holds Eight interest payments missed, totaling $161 million, and other charges. Makes you wonder if Valet and BHP are letting this sort of third entity kind of just fall and go bankrupt on its own. Samarco's operations were suspended following the failure of its Fundau Dam in November 2015. Brazilian federal prosecutors believe that both BHP and Vale failed to take actions that could have prevented the disaster, so there's huge liabilities here, but the companies have repeatedly said they were not responsible for the dam's collapse, adding that they complied with Brazilian law, and that safety was and has always been a key concern. Samarco, which was once the world's second largest iron ore pellet operation, was shuttered for five years. During that time, BHP and Vale focused on reparations, compensation, and cleanup efforts. They also faced several lawsuits and site inspections until the miner was ready to safely reopen the Mariana complex in December last year. The miner said at the time that negotiations to complete its $3.8 billion debt restructuring were ongoing. And finally, uh, the noteholders behind the case alleged their attempts to restructure their debt with Samarco had so far failed. According to the Sydney Morning Herald, the company has refused to provide financial records for them to assess their ability to repay the debt. Quote, it is notable that good corporate governance appears to be a priority for both BHP and Valet, and it is difficult to see how directing Samarco to ignore its creditors could be consistent with those goals, said Davis Polk and Ward- Wardwall partner Timothy Growlich in a letter quoted by the newspaper. So more kind of weird funding issues. It's a little strange. I mean, maybe this one because of the massive liabilities that are involved maybe like it's probably cost these companies so much money that maybe they're just kind of putting everything on hold until more clarity because, yeah, because they're probably leaking billions now. That's what happens when a tailing stamp collapses on the other side of things. So a little surprising that we have these two stories at the beginning of what looks like a very powerful market in industrial metals. Turning to another big player, Glencore, they have inked a ethical cobalt deal with Norway's F-R-E-Y-R, Freyr. This is also by Cecilia Jamasmi mining.com. Miner and commodities trader Glencore has inked a preliminary deal with Norwegian battery producer Freyr to supply 3,700 tons of ethically sourced cobalt metal cut cathodes. The cobalt, which will be produced at the Swiss company's nickelwerk facility in Norway, will be a core component in Freyr's lithium-ion battery cells to be produced at planned facilities in the town of Moi Rana. Interesting. So blockchain is involved, as I think it will increasingly. There again, there's there's a really big blockchain project. I think the biggest is V Chain. It's called, and it's based out of Asia, and it was. Some can't remember which fashion house is a guy who's leading a fashion house. As far as I remember, a CEO, he quit that job to start this V chain. And yeah, I mean, if you can be the main blockchain technology for supply chains, I mean, what is that worth? Right. So anyways, let's take a closer look. The supply agreement builds on a memorandum of understanding the company signed in December covering joint research and development projects. That document outlines combined steps towards adopting blockchain technology, potential battery recycling, as well as collaboration on standards and traceability schemes for artisanal cobalt mining. And finally, just a quote from Glencore's head of copper and cobalt marketing, Nico Perskevas, quote, We look forward to helping Freyer achieve its goal of producing batteries with the world's lowest carbon content and contributing to our ambition of net zero total emissions by 2050. Both companies recognize the importance of transparency and communication and ESG reporting and plan to cooperate to align on relevant communication regarding the impact of operations on the environment, carbon footprint, labor conditions, and human rights. And that was Freyer's CEO, Tom Einer, who said that in a separate statement. And the issue is currently about 65% of the world's cobalt is mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo, much of it by hand and employing children and young men. This is becoming a bigger and bigger issue. So you can read that on northernminer.com, Glencore Inc.'s ethical cobalt deal with Norway's Freyr. Continuing on, also on the ESG side of things, Agreco helps miners meet emissions targets by the Canadian Mining Journal staff. And Agreco is the world's leader in mobile modular power. I'd never heard of them before, and they've committed to net zero emissions by 2050 and is partnering with the world's biggest miners to use greener energy like solar, wind, and natural gas. According to George White, Agreco's Australian Pacific Managing Director, environmental responsibility and new technology are changing the way electricity is generated, distributed, consumed, stored, and monitored. White said the company has already invested heavily in the sector in the past three years as miners requested alternatives to fossil diesel. Quote, miners have the great challenge of reducing their emissions in line with the Paris Agreement, as well as their own commitments to net zero emissions targets by 2030 and 2050. So it sounds like these guys provide power, again, mobile and modular power, which is probably very useful on mine sites, particularly those that are away from power sources. And they're basically saying, hey, we have environmentally friendly power. And here we go. Miners and increasingly those with unreliable or no access to grid power are partnering with Agrico to provide hybrid power solutions on site, which might include an energy mix of diesel, gas, solar, wind, and battery storage. Power can be switched to another source and scaled up or down depending on the renewable power available and the operations daily requirements. White continued, quote, I believe that in the future we will see more miners partnering with power providers who are able to provide highly efficient, but also low-carbon solutions like a GRACO. And he also said, just 30 years from now, in 2050, increasing electrification and the growing world population means global electricity demand is expected to rise by 70%. This means the need for flexible, reliable, and integrated solutions with lower carbon and local emissions has never been greater, and our market for temporary distributed energy is growing. Yeah, it sounds like a good business to be in. So that's a GRACO. Very interesting. And finally, just to wrap up, we have the world's top 10 gold projects. And this is from mining.com staff. I thought we could just go through these quickly. So the world's top 10 gold projects by measured and indicated resources are, so get this, top, the super controversial pebble project, Northern Dynasty Minerals, that is number one. Number two is Seabridge Gold's KSM project in Canada. And then Barrick and Newmont's Norte Abierto is number three, and that is in Chile. Number four is Polyus and the government of Russia, and that is Sukhoi Log. We talked about that one a couple of months ago. Number five is Barrick and Nova Gold's Donlin Project, another controversial project. I believe there are you know, Wall Street bets. I believe there are short sellers on that one. And then number six is Gold Reserve and the government of Venezuela's Siembra, Minera, and then number seven is Antofagasta and Barrack in Pakistan, and that's the Rico Dick project, and then we have number eight, Anglo Gold Ashanti, their La Colosa project in Colombia, and number nine, we have Sol Gold and Cornerstone Capital Resources, Cascabel project in Ecuador. Again, we recalled the controversy over the stream there, and you can see why, finally, Newcrest and Harmony Gold is number 10 and they have a the Wafi Golpu project in Papua New Guinea. So there you have it the top 10 gold projects according to measured and indicated resources and those are your news stories let's take a look at metal prices. <laughs> We'd like to thank our friends at mining.com markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on February 2nd, gold is trading at $1,847.16 per ounce. That is $8 lower than last week's price. Silver is trading at $27.66 per ounce. That is $2.00. And 32 cents higher than last week's quote. And platinum is trading at $1,103.50. That is $13 higher. Palladium is trading at $2,255.75 per ounce. That is $80 lower than last week's quote. And copper is unchanged at $3.57 per pound. Aluminum is also unchanged at $0.90 per pound. Lead is also unchanged at $0.91 per pound. Nickel is down $0.08 at $8.04 per pound. Tin continues to go higher at $10.73 per pound. That is $0.75 higher. So tin, the runaway success, and cobalt not far behind at $18.71 per pound. That is $0.75 higher than last week's quote. And zinc... Staying steady at $1.16 per pound. That is four cents lower than last week. So much ado about nothing, generally speaking. I mean, we kind of have a consolidation is what I would call this. Silver, of course, is higher, but that's kind of on a social phenomenon with Wall Street bets. Uh, Platinum showing some nice strength. Palladium kind of not doing much since last year at the end of the day. Like it, it had gone up so much. Copper, again, consolidating, nickel, but tin, you know, it's not necessarily the most attractive investment for people. It was as low about a year ago. It was as low as $6.51. It is now at $10.73. It has almost doubled. Very interesting moves. And cobalt is also at highs we haven't seen since we started looking at the cobalt price a year and a half ago. So very interesting stuff going on. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have our exclusive interview with Jay Martin. And he is president and CEO of Cambridge House, which is one of Canada's most recognizable brands in public venture capital. You can see him on YouTube. We just posted several interviews as part of the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference. And that included an interview with Stephen Harper, Another with Raul Pal from Real Vision. Jay sits on the board of the entrepreneur organization, Global Business Community over 12,000 leading entrepreneurs in 53 countries worldwide. And so it was real joy to talk to Jay because I can tell he's an investor at heart. So I hope you enjoy the interview and I will see you on the other side. <laughs> joining me today on the podcast i'm very pleased to present jay martin president and ceo of cambridge house international and uh jay is all over the place i see him on youtube and uh, i reached out actually last week because i saw the stephen harper interview and ironically through the bitcoin media which is a whole other story anyways we won't get into that but uh Anyways, Jay offered to do an interview, and here we are, and I thought, what a great opportunity. So, Jay,
1: welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Adrian. Thank you for having me. So, I'm familiar with what you do, because I'm a sort of avid
0: YouTube watcher. This seems to happen to a lot of people. Once you start watching a lot of YouTube, people, they lose their evenings to it. And uh, I'm huge on financial news and So I'm familiar with you, but for people who aren't familiar with you, uh, why don't you tell us like what it is you do and what kind of business you're in?
1: Yeah, certainly. Thanks. So um, essentially, Adrian, we we produce a ton of video content and editorial. I guess when I say we, I mean I mean I. I've got an amazing team, but uh, I, I host a lot of conversations on our YouTube channel and author a weekly newsletter. And at the core of what we do, it's you know, it's it's a result of focusing on our our investment portfolio so i'm an investor first right I, I love the markets i've been in the markets for about 11 years mainly focused on small cap early stage opportunities and based in canada that really means the junior mining sector venture technology um i you know i look very hard at health science and a variety of subsectors within that and so every everything we do all the content we create the video the editorial all this stuff really just serves to improve the, the performance of of my portfolio and it's become this amazing vehicle for us to do two things. you know, uh, number one is sort of vet and due diligence on company CEOs that we think are excellent. And you know, so if I get excited about an investment idea, the next thing I do is I shortlist the CEOs in that sector that I think are the winners. Um, you know, I have a very people driven investment approach. It's just because you know I have conversations for a living and I used to run a conference business. So my access to people is very, very good. And that's my hand, right? So I play my hand and that's my edge in the industry. So I, I get to grill CEOs, you know, on camera now and do the do the diligence live in front of an audience. And that's great. And then we also have a variety of macro thought leaders on the show so that we can stress test our investment ideas. You know, if I'm super bullish, on health science or crypto or renewable energy or something like that, you know, I'll shortlist the CEOs in the space, but then I'll also invite on some experts who understand the big picture sector better than I do so they can point out my blind spots and say, yeah, and then you're bang on to be looking at this sector or you're 10 years too early or two years too late or whatever. And, um, you know, so my audience kind of comes along for the ride. I'm a retail investor just like them. And, uh, we're just doing our best to find the, smartest opportunities in the market.
0: I think that's maybe why it works so well, because I think a lot of people can relate to your position because you're basically looking for a great investment. So you're kind of perfectly positioned there interviewing the CEO and you have all the kind of questions that people are interested in. So you just had the Vancouver Resource Investment Conference, if I'm not mistaken, and you had a real all-star roster there with uh, Raul Powell from Real Vision. You had Stephen Harper And more, how many conferences do you guys do a year?
1: Well, it depends, Adrian, you know, back prior to COVID, you know, and everything getting shut down, we had anywhere from six to 10 events that we'd run every year in a variety of cities across North America. And um, you know our flagship events were in Vancouver in January, which was a resource investment conference. Another conference the same month in Toronto, the CanTech investment conference. It was a big technology event, and then we had uh, conferences all through the U.S. as well. So it really, you know, it's quite market dependent, being that we work in the venture space. You know how volatile and cyclical these markets can be. So it forces us to uh, be quite agile. And if it's a hot tech market, or you know if there's something really peaking, like cannabis, health science, crypto, gold, whatever it is, you know, we expand on that on that sector. So but it really varies. You know, we always kept a quite quite a small team and uh anywhere up to I think our biggest year was 12 events in one year.
0: That's interesting. And do you is it generally growing over time or are you guys sort of market dependent somewhat?
1: Yeah, similar. It's it, it is market dependent, right? So you know, it's funny how the the audience cuz we focus on retail investors. I mean, that's know what we we that's who we represent i guess as an audience and as a consequence of that the interest in these sectors does ebb and flow you know and i recall so for example right now it's you know it's january uh 2021 crypto is hotter than it's ever been and uh you know we can't really produce enough content in that sector to satisfy our audience but if you were to go back even just 12 months 18 months 24 months, it absolutely wasn't the case, but I was running technology investment conferences in 2016, 17 and 18. So I remember, you know, the December 2017 rally of the Bitcoin price that, you know, carried through into uh, January 2018. And at that time, you know, people were lining up around the block to get into our technology investment conferences because we covered the crypto space so extensively. And again i couldn't find enough bitcoin or blockchain related deal flow for our audience but that audience disappeared as quickly as they came because the the price you know fell as quickly as it rose and and that's you know retail investors will follow the puck right they'll go to where there's money to be made and and um so our events pivot similarly you know it's
0: so interesting that you mentioned crypto because as listeners to this podcast will know, I became interested in September and I've known about you know, Bitcoin since like 2011 when my roommate was trying to convince me to, and I just buy into it and I just wasn't having it. I was just, just give me the gold and silver, thanks. You know, I want to get rich. I don't want this toy money. Yeah. Um, but it's now that I'm in though, like I have never seen anything like this. Like I was a big a fan of the dynes letter you know i so i participated in the rare earths uh, bull market and that's basically how i got into this business i don't have a background in mining; it's more through financial uh you know retail investment sort of interest and i have to say there's nothing like the crypto markets that i see now i don't know if it's always been like this but like i joke with people I do, i'm not joking when i say like stock market is about percents and the crypto market. It's about how many X's are you making on your investment? Like, what do you make of all this? Are you as kind of like surprised and amazed at what's going on as I am?
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I, you know, sort of, I mean, I, I definitely was surprised how quickly it, it has rallied in the last six months. And it's a different asset class though, right? You know, I'm, I'm similar, Adrian. I come from a background investing in precious metals first and foremost, and still that's my core focus. You know, with the crypto market, I, I definitely participate. Uh, I'm not one of these investors that thinks you have to choose Bitcoin or gold. I think that's ridiculous. And um, I think a lot of the hate that uh, is passed back and forth from those two camps, whether it's crypto investors hating on gold what gold investors hating on Bitcoin. It's largely, I think, you know, what are the best quote I heard in the last couple of weeks was from Ronald Stofferly talking about Bitcoin. He said, a bubble is just a bull market that you don't have a position in. Yeah. <laughs> and I that was pretty smart. Yeah, you know, man. crypto is unique, right? And I think, you know, as you were saying, you're not looking for percents, you're looking for, you know, how many X's are you generating, you know, on the back of that though, you have to take it both ways. Right. And, um, to achieve those kind of price appreciations, you have to accept that some days and weeks you're going to see a 30% decrease, and it's going to happen fast. And in, in order to capitalize on those gains, you have to be able to stomach that volatility, which is not an easy thing to do. I mean, even for a junior mining investor, I'm used to volatility, I'm used to risk. Uh, but you know, my my experience in the crypto world has been uh, a whole new one when it comes to riding that roller coaster, and so. As a result, you know, I don't play with the little altcoins and I'm just I'm not uh, I don't want to invest as much time as would be required to really start trading those small coins. So I dollar cost average into Bitcoin, I dollar cost average into Ethereum. uh, And that's really the extent of it and how it works in my portfolio. I want a horse in the race, but I don't want to lose too much sleep over it.
0: That's funny you mentioned that. Yeah, so you're not on Uniswap uh, making trades on these decentralized exchanges.
1: No, no. I mean, you got to stick to the kind of it's tempting, right? When you everybody shares their successes. So you hop on Twitter or whatever, and you see these individuals touting their, you know, uh, 10,000% gains on some altcoin and you get struck with FOMO. Sure. But you know how quickly that game or how that game typically ends when you make a trade based on FOMO. So you know, I stick to what I do. I'm a value investor. I do see value in, in a couple of the more popular coins and I treat them as a store of value. I, you know, that may sound ridiculous to some people when they look at the volatility, but I look at, you know, a lot more than that. And I think that this is an asset class and really the only asset class, um, that has been created and, and, and in such, I guess, recent memory. So there's going to be all kinds of volatile cycles as it, continues to achieve mass adoption, which I believe it will, uh, and is, but no, I'm a value investor. So I don't, I don't trade, I don't day trade anything, you know, not, not crypto, not, not mining stocks, nothing. I, 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 I try to be right and sit tight as they say. And, and I buy based on management teams and, uh, you know, the outliers would be things like gold, silver, Bitcoin, Ethereum, real estate, things like that.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting. I totally agree with you on this idea of investing in people What's interesting, I think, and I don't want to dwell too long on crypto, but I feel like the precious metals and the junior mining sort of investment space really does prepare you for the kind of Wild West uh, ride of the crypto markets in a sense like, and there are so many green investors, like I get the sense just looking at the price action alone that a lot of these people that are buying these cryptos don't have stock accounts and have never had one, like that they're under 30 And you see like these FOMO and like you see these. So I don't know if you had a comment on that.
1: I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right that there's, it's just so easy to access. And, you know, it's funny. I was on a, on a show recently doing a podcast and the host asked me why we're not seeing more millennials enter the the junior mining space. And my answer was, well, first of all, we are, you know, my, my YouTube channel is, 30% Thirty percent millennials uh, and growing every day. You know, so that that's not the case anymore. I think it was for a while, but but if there's if there's reason that there's not more millennials or they haven't come faster or younger money, so to speak, hasn't come sooner or in larger numbers to the junior mining space, it's because if you think about what attracted people to it, you know, you ask the generation above myself, the gurus that I you know followed and still do, the Doug Casey's and the Rick Rules, etc what attracted them to junior mining, it was essentially that if they could find their edge and discover a way to rise to the top of the pack, then they could generate returns they couldn't find anywhere else. They could consistently find those 5X to 20X returns, you know, and and that that sort of asymmetric potential is hard to find anywhere else. But <laughs> it's not if you look at the crypto market and that's what I said, I, you know, what what used to attract people to this super high risk, super volatile sector was the potential rewards. When I talk about the rewards and the losses that I carry over a 6 to 12 month period, if I share that and it's, you know, they're, they're large, right? Both directions. If, you know, this game is is the venture market is very high risk. But if I carry those percent gains and losses over to friends of mine who trade crypto, they're like, well, we generate that in 48 hours. I mean, the volatility is really it's you can't compare it. Right. So. Uh, so yeah you know and then fractional trading and and you know no fee discount online brokerage so anybody can now hop on and trade there's a lot of distractions and easy access points to trade everything from super conservative to super volatile asset classes and and all of that you know steals a bit of market share from something else
0: Yeah like I mean to your point it's like you know if you're a a uranium bull you're pro- you're still kind of waiting since 2011 and you basically got some Yeah, I think a bit of, I don't know if it was 2016, there was a tiny blip where it went up and then the last few months, but that's a good 10 years. And then meanwhile, yeah, your crypto buddies will be like, yeah, that's like a week week at the office there. You don't need to wait 10 years for that. You know, we don't have 10 years to wait, you know, like, so yeah, so it's all really interesting. Now, you touched on your YouTube channel and I wanted to get to this idea of YouTube that I've been thinking about because I'm consuming... That's kind of like my main TV right now. I got the YouTube premium, so it's commercial-free, and I have my projector and everything. You know, and you see Real Vision with Raoul Powell there, and you see all everybody who's out there, you know, the Kitcos, the Stansbury Research, you know all the names, you're out there, and how big of an impact do you think that YouTube is having on the financial world? Because I think it's bigger... Then is maybe expressed or this sort of discussed.
1: Yeah, I think for a very long time, as you know, the junior mining sector was controlled by the newsletter writers, right? They would cover the companies, cover the space. Uh, You know, everybody had their subscription following and that was the market. Um, I think that if video has not taken over from the newsletter business yet, it is about to and it's doing so right now, you know, and I author a weekly letter, I prefer uh, to write, to be honest with you, I love it. Um, but the reach is just, uh, its it's incomparable. When we look at the video reach that we've accomplished, and we've really just gotten started. So it's pretty inspiring to look. I think you're right on the money there, Adrian. Like, it, this game is just beginning, and um, a lot of the personalities that will direct some of the best forecasts. And I mean, yeah, Ralph Paul's a great example, right? He founded Real Vision Television to democratize finance. He, you know, was born out of the 2008 crisis because he saw it coming and his friends and family didn't. And a lot of people he knew got wiped out, and he thought this is. You know i can solve some of this right by making this content widely available to people who aren't just fund managers or bankers you know the nice thing about operating a youtube channel here here's the the difference that i really really enjoy is that i love publishing my weekly letter it's great interaction we get great responses from our readers and i love to write so it's it's such a such an amazing uh activity to have but the difference between the newsletter and the youtube channel there's two that may that really stick out and the first is that My subscribers on my newsletter can't talk to each other, right? They're email subscribers. They can respond to me, but they don't know each other. They can't respond to each other. Whereas on my YouTube channel, whether we're live streaming content or we're just publishing videos, the subscribers can interact in the live chat and in the comments. And so what happens is you end up creating a bit of a community because conversations start between your subscribers. And if I put a piece of content out, either covering a company or a commodity or a certain investment idea, debates fire up in the comments and debates fire up in the live chat. You can see our subscribers going back and forth, you know, sharing notes, comparing ideas, et cetera, even down to comparing entry price points of various companies they're holding. So it's really interesting because I jump right in and participate in the conversation and it becomes this community environment, which I really, really enjoy. And secondly, you know, you have to be an email subscriber. My newsletter is free, right? All my content's free. I just like creating it and putting it out but you still have to be a subscriber to read my newsletter. Whereas, you know, we have 110,000 YouTube subscribers right now. However, 70% of our video views come from non-subscribers because that's how YouTube works. You don't have to subscribe to a channel to see that content. So the, the top of the funnel, and that's what's probably creating the rapid growth of video content producers because the top of the funnel is just colossal. If you put a video out and it goes viral, It's likely that 95% of your views are going to come from non-subscribers, and so that's uh, (laughs) if you can hear my kids losing it out there. uh, That's that's a colossal audience of new eyeballs that don't know you, don't know your content, don't know your channel, but you had a video that hit, and the Google algorithm picked it up and started pushing it out there. And you get exposed to a whole bunch of new individuals.
0: It's pretty amazing. And like your Stephen Harper interview, I I don't know if you heard last week's podcast, but I sort of quickly was just describing it. And for me, I I thought it was hilarious and not the interview itself, but I never explained myself. It was all the Bitcoin media. And it's big. If you guys have never seen the Bitcoin media, it's huge. And they're all me talking about how Stephen Harper is all pro-Bitcoin and everything. And I was like, this is hilarious because that's not what he said. He was just sort of casually put a casual remark that, yes, and if maybe Bitcoin becomes part of a future system, if, you know, X, Y and Z were to happen in a very speculative way, you know, but not like, you know, but they really run away with it. So I guess what I want to ask you is how has that impacted your conference business? Like I've never run a conference business, but I'd assume five years ago, the conference itself, the event was your main Uh, business, but now, especially post COVID, I would almost imagine that the YouTube, you know, event is your main event and not the, the event planning. And it's a hassle to do event planning. Like how, how are you sort of seeing all that?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I mean, first to your earlier point about prime minister Harper, yeah, that was hilarious how the Bitcoin community took that piece of content and ran with it. Um, And just, you know, that what I asked him in that interview was, can you imagine a world where a decentralized asset like maybe Bitcoin actually becomes competitive as a world reserve currency? And his answer was essentially, look, you know, at this point, all bets are off. We're we're reaching the logical conclusion of our financial system. The music's going to stop. The sovereign debt is too extensive and nobody knows how this is going to end. So he left it very open ended. Uh, But yeah, the crypto community definitely took that and ran with it. It was pretty hilarious. So, yeah, I mean, with the event business, Adrian, it's it's obviously on pause and uh, it's been on pause since March. You know, fortuitously, when COVID hit, a lot of entrepreneurs had to wonder if that was going to impact their industry. Right. Uh, and in some cases, depending on what sector you worked in, it took three to six months before you felt an impact. But in the event business, we knew within 48 hours of the WHO declaring a global pandemic, I called the team huddle and said, look, like 18 months, best case scenario before we run a conference. And my team thought I was crazy. They're like, what? You're overreacting. No way. All this stuff. And, and, you know, at this point, it looks like maybe that was too conservative. But, You know, we we had some other assets and, and, you know, we were trying to pivot towards more digital content distribution. So in a weird way, it was kind of exactly the push we needed to focus all of our energy on our YouTube channel and our newsletter, etc., which has just paid off tremendously and been so much fun. And when we get the green light to host events, we'll do it for sure. But you're right; it's it's uh, hosting an event is a ton of fun. Getting up on stage, having conversations like we do in the channel, but doing it in front of a live audience is a ton of fun. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why. Uh, and hosting the event, connecting with so many people, is a ton of fun. Organizing the event, on the other hand, the six to eight months of negotiating with unions, booking venues, show decorators, AV companies, all this stuff. I could probably do without that, but it's a necessary part of the job. And, you know, I, personally, I i am looking forward to going to conferences again. I attend a lot of events because, you know, I'm always trying to learn and just build my knowledge base and network, etc. So there's uh, definitely some pent up demand from me to get on get on planes. And I've got, you know, my calendar is You know, I've got a lot of events that maybe I'll get to in the fall, uh, September, October, maybe not. I don't know, but I'm definitely hoping I do. I like consuming content from the comfort of my home. I like creating it from the comfort of my home, but I like being in the room as well. And so... You know, we're we'll, we're on standby like every event producer. I'm not stressed about it. No matter what happens, you know, we're never you know we wouldn't give up this new content distribution business because it's just become so valuable to myself, my portfolio, our audience, and we love doing it. But when we get that green light for events, we'll we'll go down that path again as well.
0: I want to ask you about sort of what investments you're most excited about. But before we get into that, are you have you done like a psychedelic conference then or is it because these psychedelic stocks in December? It, I didn't really see too much on it. Than a you know, there's a Bloomberg article. I didn't see a ton of content about how the there's a major kind of I don't want to call it a bubble, but there's a major move in some of these psychedelic stocks in December. And uh, so, it, are you doing a conference on that, or, or what, what's your take on the psychedelic stock scene out of uh, Canada?
1: Well, we we did a big feature on the psychedelic space in 2018 and then in 2019 you're so early <laughs> maybe too early you know it was it was fascinating because i was you know i, I read a lot of the same books that captured people's attention back then namely michael poland's book how to change your mind right was, yeah yeah absolutely i mean that that was such a catalyst uh to turn the mainstream's eye towards that sector and the science is so compelling right you know you look at the case studies The Compass Pathways was executing two years ago, you know, a few hundred patients in the US, UK and Canada going through uh, psilocybin assisted therapies to treat treatment resistant depression and getting outstanding results. It's such a exciting sector for that reason that, you know, when it comes to things like addiction, depression, end of life, anxiety. Um, you know, really profound results with these psychedelic assisted therapy sessions and mostly because it looks like very frequently it's, it's one or two treatments to a very prolonged and sustained positive result. When you look at the typical treatment of depression, it's the exact opposite, right? It's almost experimental with the way they distribute various SSRIs to their patients um, and it's very much a subscription business. that's why I kind of had some questions in my mind. We hosted a bunch of content on this a couple of years ago, but it was really, you know, back to why we do all of it. It's because we're investors first. I'm an investor first and I want to spot opportunities before the herd. So we did a bunch of content on the psychedelic space, but I kind of left feeling like there's going to be a couple very legitimate companies with great and sound business models. But the biggest challenge everybody's going to run into is that the results are too good. You know, and and you're gonna disrupt a, you know, multi-billion dollar company that is reliant on you coming back to the table every day, if not every week. And so, you know, that's that's a that's a big business to disrupt with um what is an amazing solution, but one that's gonna be very hard because you know, the only reason cannabis ever turned legal was because of how much money there was to be made. You know, cannabis consumers, recreational or medicinal are typically recurring consumers and you know sad to say or, or whatever but it takes that to move a uh, a substance from prohibition to to legal use and now we're seeing that with psychedelics which is great because i think this is the real downside to prohibition is that you can't study the compounds you can't learn about the potential benefits and that was the case with cannabis for so long when it's prohibited you can't learn about it right you can't you know you can't so so now we're, we're getting a free pass to develop our knowledge base of these compounds, psychedelic compounds. And, you know, there's a couple of companies that I'm pretty keen on taking positions in a couple of them. But uh, I do think a lot of it is kind of the, a, a lot of hype right now. So investors have to be very careful, uh, very, very careful.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of every cycle. You know, you get these sort of venture exchange companies that switch over to the next great thing, whether it was. I don't know, maybe graphite and then it was probably lithium and then it's blockchain and then it's cannabis and now they're psychedelic companies to your point. And yeah, like you say, it's like, you know, maybe cannabis goes more according to the subscriber model, whereas maybe, you know, taking a dose of psilocybin will not have the same results. I'm from Saskatchewan and there's a huge history actually out there uh tommy douglas actually and uh was the premier and then humphrey Osmond came i think actually he came in the 50s humphrey Osmond from london and then he was in contact with aldous huxley and the, those are the guys that termed the the that came up with the term psychedelics there's a great kind of rich history in saskatchewan of all places uh for psychedelic uh treatments and it was just like you say like all these untreatable alcoholics who walk away after decades you know the most hopeless of the hopeless and there, there they are kind of transformed so isn't that interesting very exciting area and so tell me what are you excited in and is it crypto your favorite thing right now or is it precious metals what, what's what's what gets you excited as an investor today
1: yeah right so it, it's it's not crypto I, I i do carry a position and sort of dollar cost in and I used to mainly focus on Bitcoin. I'm not a seller in Bitcoin. I'm not a buyer either. I stopped buying Bitcoin in the sort of fall. You know I, I felt like the price was getting a bit ahead of itself. Um I still dollar cost average into Ethereum only because if you look at some of the important metrics, like number of wallets, uh, currently active, the price trajectory—it's very reminiscent, eerily reminiscent of Bitcoin, you know, going back a few years. So I think there's some real upside potential there. But like I said, a dollar cost average in—I don't even look at the price. I don't want to think about it or lose sleep over it. I do want a horse in the race. Um, yeah. 2021 for me is all about commodities, Adrian. I, you know, I, I have a, a large number of conversations with money managers and investors that i respect my goal is to determine where there is consensus and where there is room for debates and across the board the smartest money that i'm talking to right now is uh is is focused on the macro setup for a commodities bull market to continue and to heat up and so you know silver was the top performing commodity in 2020 i think it's going to be again in 2021 i think copper is right behind it uh, and so my portfolio is heavily weighted in the precious and base metal space right now. And I like to go quite early stage. You know, I, I have positions in some larger companies, but typically I like the spec, early stage expiration. I follow the great CEOs. That's how I make my decisions. My whiteboard's always got a list of names and probably about 30 or so names on it right now. And, and I follow those individuals around the sector. You know, if they're signing up as directors for new companies, if they're launching new deals or they're investing in companies, I like to stay on top of their movements because as you know, the junior mining game is all about the people. And so I identify those who I feel are the top performers and I I follow them around, you know, I follow that smart money and success begets success. So uh, it's worth paying attention to those individuals. Precious metals, base metals, and then if there's a sort of periphery focus. It's health science. I don't think it's time yet, but I think very soon. And I, I believe that health science will be the biggest bull market of my lifetime. And I, I think there's a host of reasons why, but uh, right now I've got a couple positions in some some telemedicine and nutrition companies, but uh, I haven't found my favorite just yet.
0: That is so interesting. Uh, There's so many points I want to touch on there. Quickly, how is it that you track, say, your favorite CEOs and people in the business? Are you looking at, are you doing Google News searches? Are you doing almost YouTube searches? Do you do everything? How how do you actually track them?
1: Yeah, all all the above, all the above. I definitely have Google Alerts uh, tagged to all the names that I follow, um, because, and I, you know, I touch base, right? These are individuals that I've got relationships with most of them anyways. And so I'm always staying up to speed on what they're working on, what's in the pipeline. Um, and you know, as a consequence of that, you know, you don't, I don't get the, uh, super cheap expiration deal, right? The 5 cent financing with some pretty, pretty certain upside because, if you're investing in CEOs that have one or two or more wins behind them, they're never going to come out the gate that cheap. Um, but, you know, it's it's where I focus. So, but yeah, it's, it's constant research, you know, as Rick Rule will always harp when he comes on the show, never carry more positions than the number of hours you can allocate to your portfolio. So if you work full time, have a family, you're preoccupied, and you only have 13 hours a week to focus on your portfolio, and most people don't have that, then you shouldn't be holding more than thirteen companies, and so um, you know I, I don't have a massive portfolio of company of companies that I am positioned in. I, I try to be very certain and uh, focused, and um, go bigger with the companies that I have a higher level of confidence in. So,
0: for the retail investors out there, like I look at the mining stocks and. You could say, okay, looking out and, you know, as Jeffrey Curry at Goldman Sachs sort of said a few months ago, and we've been saying on the show this, you know, we seem to be heading into a commodities bull market that's just sort of getting started in the last couple of months that could rival uh, what we saw, say, like, I don't know what it was, 2002 or 2003. I kind of missed the start of that one to 2007 or, you know, like, so are you kind of all about the pre-sale even if it's an expensive pre-sale or because i don't see like incredible deals out there i I see maybe good investments where you go okay this will give me like maybe 30 percent for the next three or four years which is incredible in stock market terms what do you think the mining stocks right now do you see a screaming deal here or because i don't really see that but what do you think
1: yeah that's a great question i mean you know the market maybe got ahead of itself in the spring prices got super frothy uh money came relatively easy or at least easier than it had in a decade and um a lot of companies were able to finance and um you know investors have piled in it's cooled off a little bit right so i i think that if you are specific with your approach and and really yeah there's value out there to be found um but you know i don't think it's time to just buy a basket of silver companies and sort of, you know, uh, spray and pray, so to speak. It's it's not that time. I think that a lot of these companies, they heated up very quickly in the spring and, and they haven't come down yet to correct. So I'm, I'm steer, steering clear of those. But, you know, I guess there's, there's different strategies for different times in the market, right? And, um, you know, I think at the very beginning of a bull market, the rising tide lifts all ships is as true as it's going to get. And, you know, there's a lot of very cheap, uh, expiration development companies that are on the market. And and right now I don't think that's the case, but having said that, like there's, you know, I have a long list on my watch list right now, whether they're there and I'm waiting for prices to come down, or I just need to do a bit more diligence before I take a step. Um, I do see a ton of value. I mean, the sector is healthier than it's been since, you know, I've only been in this market, Adrian for 11 years, right? So that means that I caught the tail end of a bull market In 2011, and then, you know, eight years of pain and the benefit to that is that like, you know, everybody who was there for the easy money left, you know, and anybody who stuck around was there to be productive and build value. And so it was just so lucky I, I got to build my network in a market where Um, 90% of the population had vacated. So it was easy to climb the ladder and get to know some really valuable personalities in the space and and now that's paying huge dividends. But uh, if you look at the competency of the management teams, if you look at the health of the balance sheets and even the value of a lot of these companies, they still look a lot better than they have in a decade.
0: Right, okay, well, I don't wanna take up too much of your time, so last question, in terms of the commodities bull market that we seem to be going into, do you favor the precious metals over the industrial metals or do you have a position on which might do better?
1: Well, I think it's it's a good question. I think that I think that gold and silver companies are simpler to invest in. And the reason for that is mainly, you know, if if you find the right deposit and prove that it's economic and should be pushed forward into development, the options in front of you are are numerous, right? If you have an economic gold silver deposit, it's it's feasible that the right exploration company could raise enough money to push it forward to development and even into production. And we've seen this happen a couple of times just in the last 18 months with Victoria Gold and Pure Gold. You know, they, They're able to carry the project all the way through to the end zone. And if that's not the case, the number of suitors, companies that would acquire you know, the right deposit are, are many You know, in the hundreds when you look at the junior producers to mid-tiers all the way up to the big caps. In the gold and silver space, there's a ton for the right deposit. There's a ton of opportunities. Copper is not the case, right? And so if you have an economic copper deposit, it's not absolutely not feasible that an exploration or development company could raise enough money to put that into production because you're talking, you know, about a decade and, you know, billions of dollars of, of, of money. So so that, that first option of taking it into the end zone yourself is off the table. So secondly, then you have to look for the acquisition. Who's going to acquire this deposit? And once again there's not hundreds of, of opportunities maybe five or six companies in the copper space uh mining companies that would acquire because then they'd have to invest the capital and you know accept the timeline to put this thing into production And so you have to be a lot more strategic with your base metal exploration development companies that's my thoughts they're sure there's speculation upside of copper price rallies then you know everybody might be a bit of a benefactor but i like to pick companies that understand when before they start drilling they understand and they're they're building the business to be sold they've got the suitor in mind the property is acquired in a jurisdiction that caters to that plan everything's thought out right it's not just let's grab a deposit start drilling and proving it out it's not it's not a good idea in the copper nickel space so you know, there's, there's proxies, though, companies like Nova Royalty, right, has been a, a screamer this year and one of the crowd favorites on my YouTube channel, and they're purchasing third-party royalties on copper and nickel deposits. So it's a great way to achieve some of the upside of the copper nickel prices without accepting the risk that a lot of the copper nickel exploration development companies face.
0: That's so interesting. Yeah. The streamers are a bit of an issue, a topic that I come back to. I, I get the sense that they're not quite as attractive for mining companies anymore. Like, I don't know if you caught that. You probably caught that Sol Gold thing where they had the stream that went to Franco, Nevada, and the board was kind of annoyed, would be a kind of mild way of putting it for, you know, cause they're just signing away like the 2% or whatever it is, NSR for $150 yeah. million dollars on this massive deposit. Any thoughts on the streamers?
1: Well, I mean, the reason a lot of CEOs are so outspoken against it, like Rob McEwen, right? Uh, and I get it. You know, if in a depressed metals market, if cash is hard to come by, then royalty companies, streaming companies can be quite predatory, right? And it's, it's a good business if you're invested in them, right? Um, and yeah, I think the deals in front of them are fewer and farther between now. So you have to be more careful about the royalty and streaming companies that you pick
0: right good okay well thanks jay are there any parting thoughts before you go
1: no adrian it's been great having you on if, if people are curious to find out more about our content you know cambridge house on youtube we're quite easy to find and uh we produce content a few times a week
0: okay sounds good thanks for coming on the program i really enjoyed that and uh maybe we'll see you at a conference sometime
1: i'd love that that sounds good adrian thank
0: you all right take care you have it what a fascinating interview that was you can tell jay's got this sharp mind and he's just looking for that next big opportunity and so thanks to him once again for being on the podcast and thanks to you dear listener for joining us once again if you'd like to help out the podcast leave us a review in the apple podcast directory or send it to your friends share it online and lots lined up in the coming weeks. So until then, you have a great week. Until next time, take care.